everyone and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy Collins, the host of Theana Money. This week we are doing a bit of a different episode than normal. This week is dropping, Lord willing, the morning of Christmas Eve, so I wanted to do something different for Christmas this week. Since this is a theonomy podcast, what better to do a Christmas episode than to look at a prophecy about Jesus found in one of the five books of the Pentateuch or Torah. So I'm sorry if you're disappointed that this episode is not explicitly about theonomy or economics, but we need to remember Jesus in all of that. All our talk about theonomy is sound and fury signifying nothing if God is not ruling and reigning and Jesus is not sitting at the right hand of the Father footstooling all of his enemies. We need to go back to Jesus and spend an entire episode on him sometimes on the podcast and we personally need to seek Jesus every day in our lives. Jesus is the reason why theonomy will one day be successful in the world. If we forget that, we will spend all of our time fighting with one another over specific outworkings of theonomy or figuring out what the idealistic theonomic nation looks like instead of taking steps to get our nation there one brick at a time. I think those two things are some of the major factors that resulted in the falling apart and, honestly, the failure of the first theonomic movement several decades ago. If this current one, this current theonomic movement that we're seeing recently and continuing to grow, if this current one keeps our eyes on Jesus and on biblical unity, I think we have a much better chance at being successful than our spiritual fathers did last century. That's why there is so much on this podcast and its social media posts about the gospel or about evangelism that doesn't even get at theonomy or economics. If we don't start there, if we don't start at the gospel and at the Great Commission, then all of our talk about theonomy and postmillennialism will never actually accomplish anything. So that was a bit of a longer intro than normal. But, like normal, let's do a bit of housekeeping before we dive into the meat of this week's episode. If you would be so kind, please like this episode, rate and review the show, and share the post on social media to get the truth of what God's Word teaches us about economics out there. And check out cruciformministries.org because Theana Money is part of Cruciform Ministries and its Fill the Earth Network. So today we are doing a theonomic Christmas special. And like I said a moment ago, what better way is there to do a theonomic Christmas special than with a passage from one of the first five books of the Bible, which are, of course, known as the law. 
So today we are looking at Jesus as our Passover lamb. We are reading from Exodus 12 out of the Legacy Standard Bible, starting in verse 1. So let's open up our Bibles there. If you're not reading along with me in the Legacy Standard, if you are reading along but in a different translation, well, every faithful translation should more or less read pretty much the same with a different synonym here or there. So let's get going in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. Now Yahweh said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to apportion the lamb. Your lamb shall be a male, without blemish, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted with fire. And they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning. But whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Passover of Yahweh. And I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and I will see the blood, and I will pass over you, and there shall be no plague among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So that last verse was verse 13. Now dropping down to verse 43, and from there we're going to finish the chapter. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statue of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every man's slave purchased with money, after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A foreign resident or a hired person shall not eat of it. And here we go. Let's key in on verse 46. It shall be eaten in a single house, and you shall not bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any bone of it. All the congregation of Israel shall celebrate this. But if a sojourner sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to Yahweh, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near to celebrate it, and he shall be like a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person may eat of it. The same law shall apply to the native as to the sojourner who sojourns among you. So all the sons of Israel did, as Yahweh had commanded Moses and Aaron, thus they did. And on that same day, Yahweh brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt 
by their hosts. So we see in those passages how God instituted the Passover, a vital feast and celebration that Israel was to celebrate each year. But why is it so important? That is because Passover was celebrated to look forward to Jesus coming to earth, just as the corresponding communion or Lord's Supper today looks back at his incarnation. To use the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.26, As often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are remembering the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ until he comes again. Passover for the Israelites wasn't like Thanksgiving is for us today. While Thanksgiving is a good holiday, a good reminder to be thankful to God, and possibly even a good time for evangelizing unbelieving family, it is a man-made holiday. Passover, on the other hand, was ordained by God and it was also prophetic about Jesus. That's why we read this in John chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. On the next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. The Passover was all about Jesus. It wasn't salvific in and of itself. People in the Old Testament were saved the same way we are saved today, faith in God. They looked forward to the coming Messiah with their faith. We look back on the Messiah who came once and is coming once again in the future with our faith. It is the same faith in both places. And if you disagree with that, read Romans 4. And the verse that Paul likes to quote in Romans 4, Genesis 15, verse 6. But for us to properly understand the Passover and how Jesus is our Passover lamb, we need to look at what exactly the Passover was in the Old Testament. As they say, context is king. So let's look at the context of when the Passover was instituted. God preserved Israel through a famine by sending Joseph ahead into Egypt to prepare a food supply which saved the lives of many, not just the family of Jacob. This worked out great for them for a time until Joseph died and a pharaoh became king who did not know Joseph and saw the Israelites as a means of labor that could be exploited rather than as friends, one of whom saved the nation and made it rich during a horrible famine. Thus Egypt began using the Israelites as slaves. Many of the pyramids we still have today were likely built at least in part, by Israelites during this time. Or by aliens, if you listen to that one guy on the History Channel. The Israelites cried out to God in their distress, and what did God do? You're probably thinking I'm going to say that God sent Moses. But no, God did something else first before he sent Moses. And this thing that God did gives us the context for Moses' birth. God made the wives of Israel very fertile so that they would have many children, and specifically sons. I'm sure that at first Egypt was very happy with how many sons the Israelites were having because that meant more male slaves to handle the hard labor. But soon they realized that Israel was growing faster than the Egyptians. And this meant that eventually 
Israel could revolt against Egypt and kill them and take the land of Egypt as their own territory, all of a sudden what Egypt thought was really great became really bad. And now this idea is extremely contradictory to our current cultural ideas. The pro-abortion woke people, when confronted with the issue of how abortion targets black people and that this is an evil and racist thing, something that Planned Parenthood's founder Margaret Sanger actually intended, they respond by stating that black people are oppressed in America and therefore they need to be able to murder their children to help them rise up economically because, you know, children are an economic hindrance. Except if you don't have kids, then what happens when your generation dies off? There's no more of you left. So apart from the racism of low expectations and also the racism of, like I said, when you don't have kids, there aren't future generations. So that's how people groups die off. Pretty racist, too, because it almost sounds like the people wanting abortion are wanting, to be frank, genocide of black people, which is one of the reasons why abortion is so racist. Apart from all of that racism in abortion being used to defend black people by all the feminists and pro-aborts and all that. This is contradictory to what the Bible teaches because when Israel was enslaved and oppressed, God helped them rise from their slavery by giving them more children. Not less, more. Pharaoh recognized that threat and that is why he responded with harsher treatment of the Israelites. This idea should also give us more confidence in our conviction that if we have children and raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, we can win the culture in a few generations because our great-grandchildren will be the majority and probably in high positions when they are competing with their peers who seem to be growing in laziness with each generation. Pharaoh responded to, all the children the Israelites were having by ordering that all of the males would be murdered at birth, but the females would be left alive. This would do a couple of things. First, it would make sure that the potential warriors, the males, would never grow to adulthood and never be able to revolt against Egypt and battle Egypt's armies. It was also genocide because the Israelite women would eventually marry someone and if there were no Israelite men, then they would marry an Egyptian man. Then by marriage, she would be joined to her Egyptian husband and their children would be Egyptians, not Israelites, thus destroying the Israelites in a generation or two. Now, don't start thinking that God's blessing on the Israelites was turned into a curse because of how Pharaoh responded to it. That was not God's entire plan. It was the first step in a multi-step plan that proves successful because when God decides to do something, no one can thwart his plan. That very plan of Pharaoh to murder the Israelite boys and thus wipe the entire people group off the face of the planet was what God used to cause Moses to be raised in Pharaoh's court and learn from Egyptian tutors, preparing him for later confrontations with Pharaoh and also preparing him for his leadership within Israel. God did something good. The seed of the serpent, referring back to Genesis 3.15 and calling Pharaoh the spiritual seed of the serpent, tried to turn God's blessings into a curse. But their rebellion only furthered God's good plan 
as it played into the next step in God's plan. They always do that because God is sovereign, so no matter what they do, it will always work to fulfill, not contradict, what God is doing in the earth. I'm sure you are all quite familiar with the narrative in Exodus and the accounts of Moses' life, so we're going to fast forward a little bit here for sake of time. If you're not familiar with that, then please take some time over the holidays to read at least the first 20 chapters of Exodus, if not the entire book. You can get the Legacy Standard Bible for free on lsbible.org, but the NASB 95 on the Literal Word Bible app is also good. It also has some helpful Greek and English resources. They're not too in-depth, so if you know nothing about Greek or Hebrew, you can still benefit from their sources on that app. Uh, now, neither of those two are sponsors of the show. I just appreciate the translations and the Literal Word Bible app. When God calls Moses as a prophet to confront the tyrant Pharaoh in Egypt, God brings ten plagues on the Egyptians. Plagues originally meant some kind of disaster that would smite a people or nation. That was the original sense of what we call the bubonic plague or great death, although I prefer the older term for it, the great mortality. But that event may have been what caused our understanding of the definition of plague to change from any natural disaster that ravages a nation to specifically ones of disease or sickness. That aside, God brought ten plagues on Egypt, plagues that targeted Egypt's false gods to prove that God is stronger than the demons behind the idols of Egypt. The last plague was the death of the firstborn. This would strike right at the heart of Egyptian pagan religion because the firstborn son of Pharaoh was considered the next divine ruler, just as the current Pharaoh was. But it would also destroy the nation as the firstborn of every family died, and the economy would also be destroyed as the firstborn of livestock also died. However, Israel and Egyptians who had come to believe in God and reject their paganism were saved from this judgment. Exodus 11.7 says that to make a distinction between Israel and pagan Egypt, Israel will escape this judgment and not even a dog will bark against them that night. Thus, God brought Israel out of their slavery to Egypt when they fled that night, the night of this tenth plague. By this plague and their escape from Egypt then, God instituted the Passover. For Israel to be passed over, hence Passover, from the plague of the death of the firstborn, they had to sacrifice a lamb and spread its blood on their doorpost. The lamb died in the place of the human in God's judgment. But if we merely make this about Israel being passed over in the first Passover, we miss much of the point. It wasn't so much that Israel was passed over in God's judgment. It was that God passed over Israel in his judgment of Egypt. Viewing it that way puts the emphasis on God, not on humans. This was a helpful distinction that John Calvin makes in his commentary on Exodus. That lamb, from either the sheep or the goats, had to be without blemish physically to foreshadow how Christ was without blemish in regards to sin. Since Christ is he who knew no sin, yet became sin on behalf of his people.
the lamb had to have not a single one of its bones broken as they killed, cooked, and ate it. As we see in 1246, because none of Christ's bones were broken on the cross. The blood of the lamb was spread across the framing around the door of the house. There is a tradition throughout much of church history, and some churches still practice this today, of painting the door red. This represents walking through the blood of Christ because we are clean of our sin and can worship God only by the blood of Christ. This tradition, though not commanded in scripture, makes a clean and simple comparison between the Passover and Christ as our Passover lamb. Just as God led Israel out of slavery in Egypt through the 10th plague and the institution of the Passover, that is, just as God led Israel in an exodus out of slavery to Egypt into the freedom of the promised land, so Christ leads us in an exodus out of slavery to sin into the freedom of God's kingdom. Is it taking the Old Testament too far and speaking of Christ leading us in an exodus out of slavery to sin, like how Moses led Israel in an exodus out of slavery to Egypt? Not at all. In Luke 9, 28-36, we see Luke's account of the transfiguration. Let's look at verses 28-31 to 31 there. Now it happened some eight days after these words, that taking along Peter and John and James, he went up on the mountain to pray. And it happened that while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to fulfill at Jerusalem. So Moses and Elijah, representing the whole of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, appear in the transfiguration and speak with Jesus. They speak of Christ's departure, which was about to take place at Jerusalem. The Greek word there is exodus, which gets translated as departure. Moses, the man God used to bring Israel out of Egypt in their exodus and then write the law of God, spoke with Jesus at the transfiguration about Jesus' exodus which was soon to take place at Jerusalem. Now, before we jump too far, this is no doubt in reference to his death and resurrection that were about to happen. But it was by that death and resurrection, by that atonement for sin, by that redemption of his people, that Jesus accomplished the exodus from slavery to sin for all those who would believe. In one of my favorite chapters, of scripture, Romans chapter 6. And I'm really not one big on favorites of anything, but I love Romans 6 because my need for sanctification forces me to return to that passage quite often. In that chapter, Paul picks up on this theme of freedom from slavery to sin. We died with Christ and should live with him in newness of life. We are all slaves of someone, either of sin or of God. But slavery to God is freedom while slavery to sin is slavery to a harsh and cruel taskmaster, like the harsh taskmasters in Egypt with Israel's exodus. So this Christmas, don't just think of 
cute little baby Jesus lying in a manger because there was no room for Joseph's family in the upper room. Not the inn, because that is a poor translation of the Greek, but we're not going to get into that right now. Remember that the cute little baby Jesus came to die a brutal death to pay for every sin of his people. Our every hatred, lust, and lie. All of our covetousness and selfishness. He, the man Christ Jesus, satisfied God's wrath on our sin on that cross. And now it is finished and the veil is torn. Millions of lambs died throughout the centuries between the first Passover and Golgotha. No lambs need to die any longer because the Lamb of God is perfect and only sheds his blood once and for all for the remission of sins. Marvel at the greatness of our God. I will pray for you, listeners, to be more in awe of God for what he did in the gospel. I know I need more of that wonder at the gospel in my own life. So that was this week's episode and this Christmas special of Theonomony. As we go, like always, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life, which very much would include trying to evangelize unbelieving family members tomorrow on Christmas Day. Grace and peace, friends.